Uh, the last thing that we were going to talk about from last time um, is about this, this part about people in the various states of people um, here at the bottom of page seven. Um, and the way the diagram is set up is supposed to, you, you can draw a line in where the enmity belongs, um, which I guess is helpful um, because there at the beginning uh, at creation or then after creation, there's a, there's a solid line between people and Satan. Um, so God and people, you, and you can draw a circle around God and people in one bubble together. Um, God and people share this united fellowship. And, uh, and Satan was the one who had rebelled against God sometime after the seventh day of creation. Um, and so there's enmity, that, uh, that sense of hatred. Um, I think we defined that. The state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile. So that sense of hostility between God and people as a unit and Satan, because God and people have a united will um, and the people bear the image of God. Um, after the fall, that enmity, uh, it all gets flipped. So the solid line would go between God and people and, um, and people and Satan are, are on the same page um, where the enmity now would be between God and people rather than between people and Satan. And then, um, and then in Christ is when it is restored back to the first line, that the, the line you would put between people and Satan again, and God and people have a circle around them um, in that reestablishing of, of fellowship. And that is, that is the promise um, <clears throat> that we have recorded for us in Genesis 3, verse 15, God doesn't say, oh, by the way, I'm going to send my son to, to take your place under the law, to fulfill all the law's obligations, to die for the law, and to rise again from the dead. Um, he just says, I'm going to put the enmity back where it belongs. I'm going to put the hostility or the hatred back where it belongs um, between, between people and Satan instead of between people and God. Um, and so that's, that's the promise that he makes. And then together with that, um, I guess that was, that was the main thing that we were going to touch on with that little, that little bit. Anything else from last time, either about that um, or about um, Genesis 3 and what we learned about people in Genesis 3, people in anthropology? And then we get into... Um, Chapter eight or lesson eight, the doctrine of original sin. All right, let's see if we can. All right, Doctrine of Original Sin, there at the top um, of your Lesson 8 worksheet. All of us share in the blessings of God's word and sacraments, and all of us share as well in the obligation, yes, the high honor of both defending his saving word and sharing it. Um, that was from the introduction. Uh, first one, agree or disagree, we are all created in the image of God. And the second one, agree or disagree, original sin is the sin committed by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I will give you a minute or two um, to contemplate, um, to review, or to talk with those nearby. I'm just going to close this door.
All right. Number one, we're all created in the image of God. <laughs> what do you think, Joe? All right. Disagree. And we have. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Um, that there, that we do hear even after the fall that, that God, you know, upholds the value of human life because humans were created in the image of God. Um, and that, you know, there may be some, some element of human creativity or something like that. Um, but, at, but what we also hear from like Genesis four is that Adam had a son in his own image. Um, and so when you talk about that image, we talk about it as having been lost in the fall into sin. Um, exactly. How about the second one? Original sin is the sin committed by Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. Crystal saying no. Um, I would agree <clears throat> with you. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. That the 500 years who have used that term original sin to talk about the original sin at the tree. Um, but the, the way that we normally use the term is that it's something more than that. It's um, that sin passed down from parent to child um, is original sin. Um, and also the other aspect of it is that is that you and I are also held guilty of Adam and Eve's original sin um, there at the tree. And so the way that the way that uh, Romans chapter five puts it is that, well, let's look at Romans chapter five. I think that'll that'll get us into this a little bit more. Yes, descent. <laughs> That's fine. Correct. Um, the question, did Adam and Eve have sin in their hearts before they fell? No, they did not. Um, and so the original sin, um, we, we would, if you want to use a specific dogmatic term, it would be actual sin, uh, the sin that they did during their life. Um, and that sin brought upon, upon them the full corruption of, um, of original sin that you and I experience today that they were instantly brought from that, that full image of God, full fellowship with God to complete corruption, um, just as any person born into the world in the natural way uh, would have original sin today. Which is that caveat um, that we talked about probably two times ago, that, that sin isn't part of the essence of human nature, um, but it's like the, the ink stain of a shirt that you can't scrub out. And so when we talk about original sin, we talk about um, those who are born in the natural way. <laughs> and that would exclude uh, Jesus Christ, that Jesus alone, since the fall into sin, um, and Jesus alone throughout history is the only person who, who was born without original sin uh, through the miracle of the incarnation. Adam and Eve were created without original sin. Um, Jesus is the only one who has been born without original sin. And even, you know, I would hypothesize if in the next five or 50 years, we, you know, somebody clones a human being, um, that human being would still have the original sin that they received from their parent, because um, even though they aren't born in the natural way, the, it's sin isn't something that we could remove even through the process of, of cloning, I guess. Um, just to take, take that on there. We'll be in Romans chapter five is where we're going to look um, ever so briefly. Romans chapter five, and we'll put this up on the screen too, once I find it. 
And the cool thing about Romans chapter five is that, that Paul really lays out for us exactly one very precise point about original sin. Um, beginning in verse 12, Romans chapter five, verse 12. And we'll read verses 12, 13, and 14. I think that gets us to the precise point that we'll be looking at here. Not to like tackle one huge element of original sin before we've even, you know, introduced it, but we will. <laughs> uh, so Romans chapter five, beginning in verse 12. Um, so then just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so also death spread to all people because all sinned. For even before the law was given, sin was in the world. Now, sin is not charged to one's account. There is no law. And yet, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a pattern of the one who was to come. All right, so looking, uh, working our way backward, um, the one who is a, Adam, who is the pattern of the one who was to come. Later in the chapter, if you keep, if you let your eyes scroll down a little bit, I don't know what word we used to use before that. <laughs> let your eyes scroll down the page and you'll see that, um, that Paul is talking specifically about the one man, Jesus Christ. Um, he'll get back to that in like verse 16 or 17. Um, yeah, verse, actually verse 15, um, where he says, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, it is even more certain that God God's grace and the gift given by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And so the Adam as a pattern, and um, to think this through, that Adam is the pattern because his action, um, which has a spiritual, a moral, and an ethical component to it, you know, we call it sin, um, his action had ongoing results for all people. And um, working in reverse, then, if we look at verse 15, that the action of Jesus Christ in dying and rising from the dead has um, exactly analogous, um, has the exact same sort of universal results for all people, but in the, in the opposite, in the reverse. Um, that Adam brought, brought sin on all people. Verse 15, the many died by the trespass of the one man. And so it is even more certain that God's grace overflowed to the many through the one man, Jesus Christ. So that, that's going to come into play a little bit a little bit later. If we look back up to verse um, verse 12, um, and what he's arguing from in verses 12 and 13 is he's his one main point of evidence, or the first point of evidence, is that all people died uh, from the time of Adam all the way through the time of Moses. Um, and, and that's, that, that's kind of the major point that even before the law was given, sin was in the world, verse 13. And when he says the law there, um, he's talking about the law there at, that God had given at Mount Sinai, um, that sin was in the world, even before the law that God gave to Moses, we call it the 10 commandments, um, which is a summary of God's moral law for all people of all time. Um, and that summary of God's moral law is also phrased specifically in Jewish terms. So God's moral law would say that you need to set, a time, set aside time for the proper worship of God. The way it's phrased in the third commandment is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And we know that it's God's moral law and that it's a part of the conscience um, because everything that we have in the, in the Ten Commandments is repeated in some form um, in the New Testament. 
um, that all of God's commands there in the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament, um, without, with the exception of a mandated specific day, Sabbath day for worship. Exactly. Good question. Before the ten, before the Ten Commandments, what did they follow? Um, they had the the only word that they had from God was "Don't eat the fruit." Before the Ten Commandments, they also had the conscience, and we hear um, that even before the Ten Commandments, there were there were people that God had appointed as prophets in one form or, or another. Um, such as Enoch, who lived, you know, 365 days or 365 years, sorry, days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an easy one to remember. Um, and, and others that we hear about in the line of the Savior, all the way to, to Noah, the preacher of righteousness. Um, and so, you know, whether, whether God had given them some specific revelation that they were supposed to preach about this or that uh, sin or unrighteousness, the only, the only word from God, the only word of law that we have is don't eat the fruit. Even though sin was still sin, even though they still had God's law in their conscience, and that is more than enough to hold them accountable, the point that Paul makes here in verses 12 and 13 is that, um, that, the, that God, in a sense, didn't count that that he had more than enough evidence for to count people guilty of sin and therefore having earned eternal death um, by virtue of their having broken that one command of donate from the fruit. And so the point that he's making, um, in verse 13, that, that first statement, even before the law was given, sin was in the world. Um, you can put that in parentheses um, in your Bible, if you would like. I think that that at least helps with the, the flow of this. Um, because that, that parenthetical thought is, um, is helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And the way that we, we kind of, um, the way we kind of parse that out isn't by pointing back to saying that people had the image of God and therefore they should know. Um, talking about life after the fall. So basically life when there's more than just Adam and Eve in the world. Um, we usually point to the fact that number one, there's still people still have a natural knowledge of God, which is by, you know, by observation that we know that there is a God who exists. And by the conscience, we also know that this God has standards. I fall short and he's going to punish me. Um, and so we don't, we don't speak um, in, that, in that regard. We use the image of God to talk about primarily that fellowship of God that is restored through faith and that only exists as part of faith. Um, because what we, what we see about the image of God is that it's lost in their sin. It was seen reflected for us perfectly in the person Jesus Christ um, in Colossians chapter one or two, and then Colossians chapter three, that the image of God is restored in part among Christians. 
And so to, um, I think it's a little bit helpful to keep our terms a little bit, a little bit um, separated in that regard, that when we talk about the image of God, um, even after the flood, God talks about the image of God as a reason why um, we should not be killing one another, because people were created as a special creation of God, and that they are different from the animals. Um, but then when we talk about the moral culpability or the ethical culpability of people um, since the fall into sin, um, we look, we've got the point that he's making here is that we've got this one statement of God, don't eat from the, don't eat from the tree. And also that all people know by nature what God expects of them, that, that conscience or that natural law um, and the observation of the world around us might be very much covered over by, um, by our sinful flesh or by the expectations of the world around us, um, but it's going to be there. And so, yeah, I think you're exactly right to say that, that people from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, they certainly had an awareness or an understanding of what God expected. Um, and God even talked that way before, shortly before the flood when he says that every inclination of the heart of man is only evil all the time, um, that, that God certainly sees the evil that's going on in the world. Um, but in, in his court, so to speak, um, the only command he had given was donate from the fruit. And so the point, the, the, the way that he's kind of working his way into it here in verses 13 and 14 is that everybody from Adam through Moses died because they because God, God counted them guilty of breaking that one command that he had spoken. And the, the illustration that um, Professor Wenlin used when we went through this in Romans class was like, you go to a basketball game and the, the two teams are on their side of the court doing warmups. I should look at this side too, sorry. <laughs> the two teams are doing warmups and doing their layups and free throws. And, and it looks like, you know, if you count all those baskets, then that team should have 30 or 40 points before, before the game even starts. Um, but in, in God's understanding that the game doesn't start until he has, until he has spoken. And so the one that he had spoken was that, or I guess to finish that out, sorry, um, that everything before the time of Moses was still sinful, was still something that Jesus needed to die for, was still something that people were accountable for, but God didn't count it because he had more than enough. Um, he, he counted them breaking the command that, um, that they were not to eat from that fruit of the tree. And the, and the way that he, the way that Paul um, shows this is, uh, is verse 14. He shows that death reigned from the time of Adam to Moses. In other words, everybody from, Mos from Adam to Moses died. And so that must mean in a backwards way that everybody from the time of Adam to Moses was guilty of sin, even though God hadn't yet given the Ten Commandments. Yeah. What about Abraham? Yeah, Abraham... Yeah. Yeah. Good question. What about Abraham? Um, that, that the, the entire, the entire um, Old Testament church from the time of Adam and Eve um, up until, you know, the time John the Baptist shows up, they, they were justified in the same way that you or I are, um, that God had made a promise. And through that promise, he created the faith that was necessary to receive that righteousness. Um, and so in, in Genesis, um, Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. 
I love, hate, love saying that one in church because got to look like a roll your tongue credited. He credited it to him as righteousness. Um, here in Romans chapter five is where Paul really starts to pick that apart. Or maybe it was chapter four, um, where Paul tells us who are all that he credited, he credited what to whom as righteousness. Um, because in, in Genesis 12, when God says that, he credited it to him as righteousness. It's just he and him. And so is Abraham thinking, well, you know, God must be the righteous one. And so I believe God. And, um, and that, that's one interpretation. The interpretation that Paul tells us is correct, that God accounted or God credited Abraham's faith as righteousness. So God um, placed his righteousness upon Abraham through that faith or for the sake of that faith. And so, yeah. And sorry, go ahead. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's the same way that God has worked with his church throughout, throughout all time, really, um, that he gives a promise and that through that promise, he creates faith. And the promise is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all of God's law um, in a positive way, and who also took the punishment for our sin um, so that we would have our sin in a way and we would have his righteousness accounted as ours. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That um, that throughout time, you know, God has has worked in the exact same way that He has accounted as a, He has counted to each of us the righteousness of Jesus. As this, um, we'll get to this eventually. As as this judicial decree, counting us as not guilty, even though in actuality we still are guilty as sin, quite literally. And so here in Romans chapter five, the the first thing that the first point that Paul is making is that everybody from the time of Adam through Moses died, even though God had only given one command. And the fact that they died from Adam to Moses is proof that God counted them guilty of Adam's sin. Um, And so that's that's that idea of of each individual person being directly guilty of of Adam's sin, because even, even Eve was... Um, made from from Adam's 
body from Adam's, you know, dust. Because in Genesis 2, God gave the command to Adam, don't eat from the tree. Then God says, why don't you go name the animals for a while? So you realize you're all alone. And then God created Eve. And he created Eve from Adam, that even Eve, um, that God held Adam accountable for his sin. And he, he had the responsibility of telling his wife what, you know, that this is what we ought to do or ought not to do. Um, but that even her death then would be guilty of that same sin. Um, and that you and I directly are recipients, not in a good way, but directly recipients of the guilty verdict that you ate from that tree. Because you and I are direct descendants, you know, many generations removed from Adam. The other way that he's, he's going to make this, make this point in Romans chapter 5 um, is, that, is the second point that Jesus Christ, um, through his death and resurrection, he won this verdict of not guilty for all people. And, and so it's, it's kind of, Paul paints you in a corner, basically, that you either have to prove that death is not a result of sin, or you have to deny the gospel and say that I am not a, an undeserving recipient of this verdict of righteousness. Um, because he's going to say, well, if, that, if that's that part about each of us being guilty of Adam's sin, if that's offensive to your sinful flesh, and it, and it is, um, then this gospel of Jesus and his righteousness being counted as yours is going to be equally as offensive. We'll get to, <laughs> that'll come up again, especially um, when we get to the, the subject called soteriology. Um, if you want, if you want to preview, you can feel free to skip ahead. It's like chapter 24, somewhere near the back. Um, soteriology is the study of, of how are we saved, which is the, you know, specific way in which God carried out, um, our justification. Okay. Any questions? So that's, I, I guess to summarize that, that's the, the first major thing about original sin is that there's the original, the guilt of the very first sin that is applied to you and to me. And the other aspect of original sin is the transmission from parent to child of the sinful flesh. Okay, questions? All right. Sometimes it takes a little bit to, to think our way into that one. Um, and it's not, I mean, it's probably one we could, we could talk about more, more often. Uh, the effects of the fallen to sin on attributes. I'm just going to move this out of the way. Uh, worthy of review. That the most important component of the image of God, its very heart and core, was the holiness and righteousness. Adam and Eve's holiness was a total separation from him. Their righteousness was a state of being right with God, or a state of being right with God. We might think of it this way. The living shell of the, the image of God in Adam and Eve consisted of emotion, will, and reason, the organs of the soul. But the heart and core inside of that shell, and indeed that which permeated the shell and made it so beautiful, was God's gift of righteousness and holiness. Um, and I guess what he's saying here is, you know, the, the, the organs of the soul, as we kind of talked about previously, the ability to reason, the ability to have emotion, um, the ability to apply those in, in your will and to follow through with an action, um, that those are still there. 
but they they will not be used for a godly purpose and they won't be animated in a godly way um, without faith or apart from faith. And so in that, in that fall into sin, in the losing of the image of God, um, the soul is still there. They didn't become soul less, um, but that soul is now, you know, missing that central component, which is that, um, that righteousness with God and that fellowship with God. Okay. Uh, that next little paragraph, uh, the fall of Adam and Eve was most devastating in the change that it worked in human nature. Uh, from the moment of their sin, Adam and Eve lost, lost for themselves and for the whole human race, that most beautiful and sublime attribute, the image of God. To be sure, there were still traces of God's likeness left, its shell, so to speak. Adam and Eve continued to have a soul. They still retain the organs of the soul, uh, their emotions, their will, their reasoning capacity, but the heart and core of the image of God, his holiness and righteousness, those were totally and altogether lost. Holiness is the absence of sin. Righteousness is a correct status or a right relationship with God. Any sin destroys holiness and renders the sinner unrighteous. Questions. Uh, this next part about um, about death. Um, how did you define death? Yeah, yeah, separation. Um, and so, when we talk about death as separation, uh, physical death, the separation of body and soul, um, and and I mean that's yeah, separation of body and soul. <laughs> Uh, spiritual death is separation of, of the person from God or uh, from God's loving presence, more precisely. Um, because, I mean, that, that's another thing that, we'll, that we, I don't know if we talked about it when we talked about um, theology and the attributes of God, that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere. And so it also means that God is even present in hell, but he's not there with any of his loving, you know, mercy and kindness, any, any of his grace and goodness. Um, the, they only exist or the, they only experience the, the justice and the wrath of God, um, there in hell. And to think of that, um, Jesus, Jesus talked to his disciples about that when he said, you know, don't fear those who can only kill the, kill the body and can't do any more, uh, fill, fear the one who can throw your body and soul into hell. Yes. I tell you, fear him. And your Bible translation probably does a nice little favor there by capitalizing the word one, if you're the one who can throw you both body and soul into hell. Um, and so with that, it, it also, it also reminds us that like hell is a creation from God. Um, he created it as a place of punishment for the devil and for his, for his, the demons who were in alliance with him. Um, and, and that we don't fall into the kind of the new age philosophy or the star Wars philosophy that there's a, a light side and a dark side, a good side and a bad side, a yin and a yang. And God's just the good one. Um, because God is the creator of all. And even in his holiness and justice in creating a place of punishment for the devil and his demons, um, the Christian sees that as God fulfilling his will and God doing so, uh, for a, for a good, holy, just, and righteous reason. Um, we could talk a lot about that one too. All right. So spiritual death is a separation from God's loving presence. Um, I think, I think that, that helps us to fine tune that just a little bit. 
um, that it's not just a separation from God, um, where even people in this world, they, they might have some understanding, um, even the unbeliever might have some understanding of the existence of God, but they might not know who he is, or um, they might know what he expects, but their only, their only understanding of, of God is either what they observe in the world around them and whatever meaning they attach to it there, or that sense of impending doom that this God has a standard, I fall short and he's going to punish me. Um, those are just the, the two different elements of the natural knowledge of God um, that we can see, you know, in the world around us, that God is orderly, that God, you know, creates beautiful things. Um, that God must be good. That gives us a hint in the world around us, but in our conscience, we don't see anything about, about God's goodness. And we see nothing of the gospel or, or grace in, uh, in anything that the natural knowledge of God has to offer. And then finally, uh, the third type of death, eternal death. Any suggestions for that one? Yeah. Yeah. And eternal separation, uh, body and soul from God and from God's loving presence um, in the torments of hell. So that, um, so that at the resurrection of all flesh at the end of time, you know, the, the Christian will be raised to everlasting life. And the Christian will be raised with a glorified body without sin. Um, I think, you know, I think there's enough to say that the, the unbeliever, when they are raised as well, and they receive their body back, it, it won't be in a glorified way. Um, and they won't be raised to eternal life, but to eternal death. And that's, um, that's that phrase where the worm does not die and the fire does not go out. You know, that kind of comes up a few times. Um, and the image there is of this, this ongoing death that never ends. Um, and it, I mean, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, right? Um, and but but also to not to not fall into a trap or a misunderstanding of law and gospel, as if to say that God is not in hell. Well, He is, but He is there with only, without His loving presence. He is there only in His justice and His holiness, carrying out His judgment um, upon sin, and and that judgment is just. Um, all right. Anything else? Any other questions on death? What's that? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, and, and that topic, that discussion of, uh, of physical death, um, I think we've touched on that one a little bit, that it, it is a little bit more challenging um, to, to understand exactly, you know, when somebody maybe on life support or similar, um, when is that person finally dead? Um, the guideline that we typically use and that the medical establishment typically uses is brain activity that we're able to, to measure brain activity. Um, and if that's not there, and if it looks like that hasn't been there for a while, or it's going to persist in that way, um, then we can say, well, these machines might keep the, the blood flowing and the breathing happening. Um, but in good conscience, you know, the Christian can say, well, we're going to unplug that you know, if, and if after much consideration, of course, um, the Christian can say we're, we can unplug that. And, and if God wants to keep that person here, um, and their body functioning, then they will keep breathing. And, or we can acknowledge that while this person might be already dead, even if their body is still keeping itself or being kept warm and, uh, and it's blood circulating. Um, and, and some of that, some of that also gets into the topic of organ donation, which we will also include on Q and A Sunday.
All right, what did Adam and Eve lose and what did they gain when they sinned? What's one thing they, I guess the left-hand column before the fall is, is the things that they had that they lost. And the right-hand column after the fall, the things that they didn't have that they gained. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. So before the fall, they had righteousness and holiness. Um, and, and so if you, if you want to pull in your, your, you know, seventh grade catechism, um, words, which are <laughs> words that we hopefully use righteousness is a justification word, um, which is God's attitude toward us totally apart from any action of our own, um, God's attitude toward us for the sake of Jesus. Holiness um, is talking about sanctification and, you know, holy actions. And you'll, you'll see that um, hopefully subtly in the, the closing part of our worship service. Um, we thank you, Lord, for giving us your righteousness in this sacrament. Help us to lead holy lives until that day when you take us to heaven. Um, and so, you know, the, the comparison between righteousness, now they have this, the sinfulness, um, or comparison to holiness, now they have this sinfulness and this righteousness, now that they, they have this unrighteousness, or this, uh, this hostility, or this antagonism toward God. I think that's a, that's a good word for it. And we, and we see that, that plays itself out. Um, even at any time that you talk with somebody who is not a Christian, you're going to know at some point, even though they, they, they might be very well-meaning or, or they're even interested in the church, um, you, you probably won't have to look or talk very long before you start to see this natural uh, pushback to what God says in his word. Um, and I mean, there are some people that we you know, get to know a little bit better and then we can see it more clearly, um, but it's always going to be there. And it's, and, and, and it's there with each of us um, in, in our sinful flesh still, as well as our natural state uh, before God brought us to faith. So we looked briefly at um, Romans 5. Why don't we look, we'll start with Psalm 51. That'll be a good Old Testament one. Psalm 51, verse, verse 5 in particular, um, or verses, verses 4 and 5, I suppose. Against you, you only have I sinned, and I have done this evil in your eyes. So you are justified when you sentence me. You are blameless when you judge. Certainly, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. And then the other one that we'll look at is from Ephesians 2. Uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. So you're thinking New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. What's that? <laughs> yeah. There you go. 
And if you look at um, verses 1, 2, and 3, in particular of Ephesians chapter 2, um, here Paul is, obviously he's writing to the Christians there in Ephesus, um, and chapter 1 made that fairly clear, even in, in the way that the letter was addressed. I think he said to the saints of God in Ephesus or something like that. Um, here in chapter 2, he says, you were dead in your trespasses. Oh, there we are. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked when you followed the ways of this present world. You were following the ruler of the domain of the air, the spirit now at work in the people who disobey. Formerly, we all lived among them in the passions of our sinful flesh, as we carried out the desires of the sinful flesh and its thoughts. Like all the others, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Right, so looking at verses 1, 2, and 3, what are some ways in which God um, describes the natural state of humans who are born in the natural way? <laughs> in verses 1, 2, and 3, what is 1? All right, right up there in verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. How about uh, verse 2? I think there's another one. Excellent. Yeah. Following the ruler of the domain of the air. Um, in other words, you know, following the devil and doing his bidding um, and even being deceived into thinking that you're not. Um, how about verse three? There are, there are two different ways, at least two, maybe three in verse three. What would be one of the ways that God describes natural humans in verse three? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, the first part, we lived among them in the passions of our sinful flesh, and we carried out the desires of the sinful flesh and its thoughts. And then we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Um, and, you know, just the question, who is it that deserves God's wrath? Well, those who are sinful. <laughs> Um, and I like verse three in particular, um, you see the, the three different, what we call the three different organs of the soul or the three different elements of the soul. Um, I guess organs is a pretty good way of putting it. Um, talking about the passions of our sinful flesh, talking about the, you know, the emotional awareness of a person. Um, the, we carried out the desires of the sinful flesh to carry it out is to, you know, follow the will or to exercise one's will in the service of that desire, um, carried out the desires of the sinful flesh and its thoughts, that the sinful flesh has, has even corrupted you know, our, our human souls, and, um, and that the sinful flesh you know, has its own thoughts. Um, that thought talking about the, the rationality, you know, the human ability to think. All right. I guess it's a good thing in Bible class to um, look at your Bible. Going back to, there we are. So what actually is passed on from generation to generation? 
from. We've looked at three of the four sections there. Yeah. Yeah, original sin. Um, and so here, you know, we're talking about, we often call it the sinful nature. Um, sinful flesh is, is, I guess, the more precise word and actually the, uh, the word that Paul uses in Romans most of the time. Um, that we're talking about the sinful flesh being passed down from, from parent to child. Um, and that sinful flesh is, is one component of the original sin. Um, the, the original guilt that each one receives directly from Adam's sin is the other component of original sin. Um, so yeah, it's like, you see this, 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 you know, beautiful brand new baby. And it's like, well, I know you're spiritually dead in your sin. So let's get you baptized. I think that was, that was Luther's comment about, um, you know, one of their, one of their children where they, you know, announce, I don't know, he must've been in the next room waiting. I don't know what it was, but, um, the, the, the midwife helping with delivery said, congratulations, you've got a, you know, you know, healthy little baby boy. And, uh, and his kind of somewhat sarcastic, but he, you know, he dearly loved his children too. Um, his, his comment was, all right, let's go get that little wretch baptized. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, and together with that, um, you know, I, I, at least the practice that we've been able to follow in, in, in our household has been to usually baptize like on the following Sunday. Um, one of our children was baptized in the hospital um, just because there were some extra concerns after the delivery. And, and even in that case, I had one of our elders come over and, uh, and observe you know, so that it was like part of the, the church work because like I'm the dad here, but I want the elders to know that this is like an actual thing. Um, and that, that's what I usually encourage our parents, you know, usually, usually the parents find within a week or two. Um, I think that was the, the two most recent baptisms we've had have been either a week or maybe two weeks after, after delivery. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it's a, it's a good thing because of this exact truth. Um, we'll get to that when we talk about baptism, but when we talk and the gifts that God gives in baptism, um, but the short answer is that the gifts that God gives are the gift of faith. Uh, the, which receives the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. And that, that gives, you know, life and vitality to, to all the gifts of the human soul of emotion and reason and will. Um, and it also brings that person back into a proper relationship with God and uh, brings about the restoration, at least in part, of the image of God. Um, as, you know, he's kind of talked about in most of this chapter. I should let Deutschlander talk instead of me. <laughs> So what do we mean that we were born with a sinful nature um, or a sinful flesh? It's that, it's that inborn inclination towards sin. And that's what we're specifically meaning there. And, and together, it, together with that, that it's not just the inclination towards sin. You know, we get that from like Genesis 6 or Genesis 8, that the, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Um, but that inclination towards sin um, and the sinful nature, the sinful flesh actually is sin. Um, and in that respect, you know, a number of our theologians, um, or, you know, going back to like the 16th century, um, said that really, you know, there's only, there's only one sin <laughs> or, and only one source of sin. And that's, that's original sin that we're born with original sin, um, which is the inclination and the actual culpability for sin. Um, and that from original sin is the, is that's the source of every other, you know, sin within our lives. Um, I could find the, the priest, I can't find it right now, but I could look it up for next time if we'd like. Um, 
because I think it's I think it's in the Book of Concord where Luther talks that way also. Um, and realistically, you know, that, that's the question: What in this world would we do that is sin that isn't prompted, agreed by, and indulged in um, by our sinful flesh? How about this one? Uh, top of the next page. If we yeah, if we keep scrolling. What is your initial reaction? What is your initial reaction to Professor Deutschlander's statements? Original sin is not a sin which we commit. It is not something we do. It is rather something that we have, that we inherit. That is the hatred of God, the inability to do anything about it, the inability to do anything at all that is God-pleasing, even the ignorance of our condition and its dreadful consequences. All of this is part and parcel of original sin. Original sin is a deep-seated, thoroughgoing tendency to evil. It is an inherited accidental attribute. Accidental as in something not part of the essence. Um, you know, like that ink stain on a shirt. It is an inherited accidental attribute which causes all of the naturally born descendants of Adam and Eve to be by nature spiritually dead, enemies of God, and deserving of eternal separation from him in hell. <laughs> yeah. When you first read that, either, either here or when you're reading uh, in your book, Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. Definitely. That... <laughs> yeah. Now we look at it as a Christian and say, you know, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, but even just reading through this, my there's there's almost that inside part of us that says. I don't want to believe this is true. And it, if it is, it's not my fault. And if, and if it's not my fault, I can't be accountable for it. And I was born into this and I can't help it. And, and, you know, it's somebody else's fault, you know, back, back then, but surely I can't be the one accountable for that. Um, even, you know, just reading through this and that is exactly the, exactly the problem. You know, it's kind of like that, that joke, you know, how do we know that, that the brain is the, the smartest the thinking organ of our body. Just like, who's telling you that? <laughs> well, your brain is. <laughs> How do we know that the sinful flesh is as bad as it is? Well, it's always trying to hide. Um, kind of, I guess, in reverse. That joke was funnier in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Um, yeah. Sometimes you just have to admit that that one fell flat and let's move on. <laughs> Uh, attacks on the doctrine of original sin. Yes, Lois. Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we talk about, um, we talk about original sin and we just had this extensive paragraph about, um, all the, the effects of original sin and how it influences and impacts absolutely everything that we do. Um, and, 
and the question then, well, what about things that are that are good in this world? Things of secular goodness, or the term that we would use is um, civic righteousness. And so what we talk about with original sin, um, the, the very first thing that we see is that we're talking about the spiritual condition of people, which is, um, I mean, if you want to parse it out to morality and, and ethics and then action, um, that's kind of like morality. Your morals are the absolute core of your being and then like the core of an apple. And then the ethics are how your morals play out um, and your kind of basic decisions about how do I go about my life in this world. And then ethical action is kind of beyond that. And, and so you could look at the world around us um, and say, well, you know, my, my neighbor is a good person. He does things that are ethically good or leaves a morally good life. Um, and that's exactly correct. Um, but the truth of original sin says that is of, that's of no value in God's eyes, aside from the limited time in this world. Um, and so and, and it's kind of like the influence of government, that it's for maintaining peace and stability in society in general. Um, so things might be good in a civic sense or in an outward sense, um, even though they have no, they are morally repugnant to God because they don't come from faith. Um, not just that they're morally neutral or they don't count, um, that, you know, Isaiah, Isaiah talks about it as um, all of our righteous acts, you know, apart from faith, all of our righteous acts are as filthy rags. And, uh, and the term there he uses is a pretty, pretty, pretty vivid term for like biohazardous waste. <laughs> Um, I guess that's a politer, politer way of putting it. And, uh, and so there's the two, the two aspects that in this world, somebody may do something that is good. Um, that is, it's morally good. It's ethically correct. Um, but at the same time, it has no spiritual value. And so apart from faith, um, that, that person who is an unbeliever and does things that are morally good, can't even have a good motive at the heart. Exactly. Yeah, that that a good work can can have limited value for life in this world. It's a good thing um, to to make sure that, that your neighbor is warm and well fed. Um, but that that good thing, the, the value of that good thing ends <laughs> very quickly. And it has it's still a big fat, you know, zero or negative in the spiritual column. Anything else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That that somebody might donate their extra kidney. And um and that might extend that might extend a person's time of grace here on earth. In that respect, it might there might be a spiritual component in it eventually. Um, but for the unbeliever to donate a kidney, yeah, it has some, it has some civic good. It has some moral good. You can make an ethical case that this was an ethical choice to, to make with my other kidney. Cause I have two and I only really need one, um, that it was an ethically good thing. Um, but apart from faith that, that ethically and morally correct action is still, um, still inherently sinful, unholy and unrighteous in God's eyes. Anything else? It's already after seven o'clock. We should uh, close with prayer.
Dear Lord, we thank you uh, for revealing to us um, exactly what loves to hide in plain sight that is our condition by nature. And we thank you most of all for not leaving us in that condition as ones who were unholy and unrighteous, but that you gave your son uh, to be our righteousness and to give to us his holiness. And so we ask you to continue to encourage us in this truth um, that we that we see the world around us with the eyes that you have given, uh, with an understanding of original sin and all of its effects, and most of all, um, the grace of your Son, which you want, you have extended and want extended to all people. We ask that you continue to carry this out, uh, both here and around the world, to the glory of your name. We pray, Amen.